I'd like to now introduce our preacher for today, Robert Moore. I just met him earlier today. I was impressed when he got out of his car and was wearing short sleeves. I said, there's something wrong with this guy. However, in reality, uh, he's born in a, or brought up or lived in Augusta, Georgia for a long period of time, but about four and a half years ago, migrated to uh, uh, New England, I, I guess right to New Hampshire. Um, or, yeah. And so he currently is a pastoral intern at Christ Redeemer Church in Hanover, New Hampshire. He, so he's been here about four and a half years, so he knows what the weather's like in Maine and New Hampshire. But uh, Christ Redeemer Church is part of a network of churches known as NETS. NETS, and you're going to hear more about that, not just today, but in the future. NETS stands for New England Training and Sending, right? And so think about that. New England Training and Sending. And that particular organization, NETS as it's called, uh, is heavily involved in church planting and revitalization of churches in New England. So a uh, great pleasure to invite Robert to the podium, and I will make room for his Bible by taking mine off. So Robert, come and share what's on your heart. Well, good morning, everyone, uh, and thank you so much, Jay, for that wonderful introduction. I know, I, walk, I got out of the car and I walk in and he said, did I see you wearing short sleeves out there? Um, and like he said, I'm originally from Georgia, and my whole life growing up, I was determined to get somewhere that was finally colder, so I'm very happy with the weather. <clears throat> and I really do want to thank you all for having me this morning. Um, I know that Ademi is just such a great guy, and I wish that I, uh, I'd been able to get to meet him in person. Um, but yeah, I'm just really thankful for the opportunity to speak with you all today, and I hope, it's, I hope you'll hear the word, uh, and you'll hear the, the Holy Spirit speaking through that. And so at our church uh, up in Hanover, New Hampshire, we went through a sermon series on knowing God this past fall. And specifically, we've been focused on understanding God and specifically his various attributes. We've also been working through J.I. Packer's book, also called Knowing God, in conjunction with the sermon series, and we talked about things like God's majesty, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his love, uh, and many of his other qualities. And our goal with this whole series was to get our church and our community focused on looking heavenwards and focused on the incredible, perfect creator God. And so today, I'm going to be working through three different passages, in a, and so that'll be two more in addition to the John 4 passage. I, I went a little scripture overload on Boyd, unfortunately, so you'll just have to bear with me on that one. And so our first passage today comes from Deuteronomy 4, it's verses 23 and 24. And he says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And so our topic today, the jealousy of God, is a little different than a lot of other gods, a lot of God's other attributes. And it might even make you uncomfortable thinking about God, our God as a jealous God. 
is one of those aspects that we sometimes like to sweep under the rug um, along with God's wrath. And I think especially in America, we have a tendency to think of God either as this cuddly guy who just wants to love us and shower mercy and grace on us. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And so we either like to think of him as this cuddly guy who just wants to shower us with love and grace and mercy or as this righteous avenging God who is always on our side and never our opponents. We're okay with God being loving and merciful towards us, and we're more than happy for God to be just and exacting against our enemies. But jealous? Really? I don't think anyone would want to run out in the streets proclaiming the name of a God who calls himself jealous. I mean, can you imagine looking out your window one morning and seeing someone running past calling out, praise the jealous God, praise the jealous God. The whole picture seems almost ridiculous. And yet Deuteronomy here shows us that God is indeed a consuming fire, a jealous God. And if you notice, the title of my sermon is The Jealous Husband, God's Loving Jealousy. And you may hear that title and ask yourself, what does he mean by loving jealousy? Can someone's jealousy actually be loving? Isn't it inherently selfish to be jealous? Why would he apply something as vulgar and sinful as human jealousy to God? And I think you're right to ask these questions. There's not a lot of debate on on whether jealousy is a good thing. There's not a lot of people clamoring for jealousy's goodness. But I think there are at least two flaws in how we tend to think about jealousy. And so today I want to expose those two flaws. And then I want to look at the facts about God's jealousy before ending by looking at the freedom God's jealousy actually gives us. Flaw, fact, freedom. And so I just told you that there are very few people who would say jealousy is a good thing. So so if this is true, then what could be the flaw in how we're thinking about this? And so I believe that when we think of jealousy in general, we assume it's always a bad thing. And thus, when we think of God's jealousy, we tend to think that a jealous God couldn't possibly be good. But all of God's other attributes, his love, his patience, his kindness, his faithfulness, etc., all of them emphasize his goodness and compassion towards his people. And so if this is true, if God truly is compassionate and good, then his jealousy must also factor into this dynamic somehow. And I think part of why we struggle to see God's jealousy as a good thing is that our human jealousy in most situations is selfish and vindictive. J.I. Packer, in that book I mentioned earlier, Knowing God, describes our jealousy as vicious. And a quote from his chapter on God's jealousy says it this way. He says that vicious jealousy is an expression of the attitude, I want what you've got and I hate you because I haven't got it. But notice there are two components to his definition. First, he says it's about wanting what you don't have, but it only becomes vicious when that desire turns into hatred for someone who has what you don't. And it's that hatred component of our jealousy that leads to how we normally see jealousy portrayed. 
But what is our jealousy directed towards, you may ask? And, and that can be an object or some other tangible thing, like a toy or a game or a house or a car. But our jealousy can go far beyond just wanting stuff to wanting things that have a much larger, long-lasting impact. I mean, think about your job. It's painful. It's painful enough to watch someone get the job that you want, but it's even more painful to watch someone get the job you want if you think you're more qualified. And there's that little part of you that will continue to tell you that you deserved it more. And that's what makes us jealous. But I think that the one area where our vicious jealousy is more common than any other is in our relationships. And now I know I'm guilty of having been in a relationship and felt jealous because the, the girl that I was spending time with was hanging out with a past significant other or even just someone else who I felt threatened by. And that jealousy, if it's allowed to continue to feed on our emotions, can lead to controlling behavior and even abuse. We've seen the consequences of vicious jealousy destroying the lives of so many people. And I would hazard to guess that almost all of us here have felt jealousy's corrupting touch in our lives or in the lives of loved ones. And this is true the world over, so this is why it is almost universally despised. However, before some of us start thinking that we don't struggle with jealousy, I think it's important to point out that while too much selfish, vicious jealousy is toxic, a lack of good jealousy can be just as poisonous to our relationships. Remember, there are two components to our definition of jealousy. Wanting what you don't have can be a good thing. This is what gives us our desire to improve things in our lives, whether that be our health, our work, our relationships, and if you lack this crucial component, if you refuse to stretch yourself to go beyond what you already possess and feel like you have, it can lead to passivity. And passivity is hated almost as much as jealousy. And so this sinful withdrawing of love and affection, uh, I'm going to call impotent passivity. It's powerless and it's all about shrinking away from the people and things that you, you love. So to figure out whether this is something that you struggle with, I want to ask a question. Have you ever been told that you just don't seem invested in something? Whether that's in the lives of your children, your siblings, your spouse, or your friends, everyone wants to feel like they're noticed and cared about. Here's a line that might be familiar to those of us who don't struggle with jealousy. I don't just want you to do whatever. I want you to want to do whatever. You can fill in anything that you want there, whether that's the dishes or reading to your kids or going to see this movie you couldn't personally care less about. We want to be wanted enough that people will show us that we are loved. How many of us have felt the hurt that comes from feeling like you aren't wanted? There's little more painful than feeling abandoned and uncared for. And while we want people to be excited for us, when we succeed and we hate to feel targeted by someone else's jealousy, how much more do we hate feeling like the people we love don't care about us or are disinterested in our lives? A lack of jealousy, of wanting the affections of another person can lead us to isolation and can hurt those we truly care about just as much as vicious jealousy can. And so if you feel like jealousy isn't your problem and this kind of thing hits a little closer to home, then to you, I would say you aren't nearly jealous enough. 
And if this is leading you to feel confused because you might be raising your mental hand for both having too much jealousy and not enough, then I say welcome to the club because I think most of us struggle with having the right amount of jealousy all the time. Our desires are so easily distorted, but why? Why is this twisting of our desires so prevalent? And I think it's because human vicious jealousy and human impotent passivity sneak their way into almost every interaction in which we compare ourselves with someone else. And so then why do we compare ourselves to others so frequently? It's, it's because we are deeply, deeply insecure. Because both vicious jealousy and impotent passivity depend on us feeling like we're not enough in some area. With stuff and things, we feel like we, we aren't smart enough or rich enough to be able to afford the things that we want. And so we're jealous. Or perhaps we feel like we shouldn't have to work that hard to get something that we want. So why even bother? With our jobs, we feel like we're not qualified enough or good enough to get the one that we want. And so we, we jealously seek after a way to get what we feel like we deserve. Or maybe we won't even bother with being disappointed. Because it's not like it was something worth working towards in the first place. Why devote my love to something if I just might not get it? And in relationships, I think the reason for reacting either in vicious jealousy or impotent passivity is pretty similar. Because we feel like we're not worthy enough of love to actually be able to trust that our husband or our wife or our girlfriend or our boyfriend or our children or our parents or our friends really, truly love us. After all, we know how often we fail. We know all the bad things we do and think. We know how imperfect our attempts to love are. And so we wrap ourselves either in this vicious jealousy, thinking that it will justify our insufficiency and weakness, or we wrap ourselves in passivity, hardening our hearts against the hurt that we feel when we don't feel wanted. But the irony is that both reactions only end up trapping us further creating even deeper hatred and anger and self-loathing. And so this brings us back to where we started. Why on earth is our God a jealous God? Can all this mean that God is insecure? That he makes mistakes, that he fails to love perfectly? Could God be vindictive against us or, other, or otherwise react pass passively and turn away from us because he doesn't care? And to that, I would say scripture answers, of course not. So then how does this work? How is God's jealousy different from ours? And so to answer that, as I move to my second point here, seeking to understand the facts of God's jealousy, I want to return to our readings for today because in order to understand God's jealousy, we need to understand what our relationship with him looks like. And so specifically where we're going to be going is a passage from Hosea, and this is Hosea 2, 16 to 23. And now, if you're not familiar with it, the story of Hosea is a short one, but it is incredibly important context in order to understand what's being communicated here. And so we have this guy, Hosea, who was a prophet called by God to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And their relationship here is deeply symbolic because God has been trying to get his people, the Israelites, to turn back to him for centuries. 
And so you see in First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, that he sent them good kings, he sent them bad kings. He sent prophets and war and everything under the sun to show the Israelites their need for their God. But they haven't listened. Very few have paid any attention at all. And so we enter into the story here during the decline and fall of the Israelites after they've turned almost completely away from God. Israel has been split in half. And many people have even started worshiping other gods like Baal, the Canaanite storm god. And so in response to all of this, God has commanded Hosea, a prophet he commissioned to be an example to the Jewish people, to marry Gomer as a demonstration to all of Israel what their relationship with God looks like. Imagine waking up one morning and being told that you were going to have to marry someone who you knew would be unfaithful to you. Because this is the start of Hosea and Gomer's relationship. And the picture of their relationship is so depressing. God tells Hosea not just to marry Gomer, who he knows will be unfaithful, but to have children with her and to name their daughter literally no mercy and their son literally not my people. There is no hope given to Hosea that, Gomer, that Hosea will be able to make Gomer change. And the covenant between them almost seems worthless because it's based on a relationship that is begging to be crushed. The image here is one of complete and utter hopelessness. Again, no promise here has been given that somehow by marrying Gomer, Hosea will be able to change her. No, she's going to continue living as a prostitute while they're married. But then after God reveals that this hopeless relationship is what Hosea will be entering into, God gives Hosea knowledge of something else that is going to come to pass. And this is where our passage today comes into play. So Hosea 2, 16 to 23. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, And no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever." I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy." And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Here we see God promising that he will take the names of other gods, other Baals, from the mouths of his people. He will bring peace and will not just bring peace, but betroth. He will promise himself to his people forever. Because surrounding all this hopelessness and pain, that Hosea and Gomer are experiencing is a promise of righteousness, of justice, of love and mercy, and above all, faithfulness. But what does he end the first section with? 
this promise of faithfulness and knowledge because this is God's desire that we would faithfully worship and know him. So how do you and I fit into this story? Well, I think the message that God was communicating to the Israelites remains true today because we are Gomer. We have turned and devoted ourselves to Baals, to other gods, and whether those gods are money, other people, or ourselves, we have prostituted ourselves to them and turned away from the one who loves us most deeply. And our God is, as Moses puts it in Deuteronomy, a consuming fire, a jealous God. But that jealous God's desire is that we would worship and know him. A jealous God has chosen an adulterous people as his own. And he has not only chosen us, but promised himself to us. And yet day after day in our sin and jealousy and passivity, we chase after other Baals. Whether that's self-justification or legalism or self-sufficiency, or maybe if we're honest, we chase after more carnal things of lust, of greed, of deceit. And God's betrothal to us, together with his jealousy, requires him to act to try to bring us back, to restore that relationship. But his jealousy doesn't lead to vicious attacks against us as people. He doesn't call us worthless or try to force us to love him by preventing us from going out and loving other things more than him. God's jealousy is not controlling. It is not insecure and it is not harmful. He lets us choose other things, all these other idols, knowing that one day his people will see how worthless these things are and choose him. Now, you might now be thinking that that makes God sound weak uh, or like he needs us in some way. And I think that's not quite right either because God is not meekly sitting back and waiting passively with that impotent passivity we talked about. If we know anything about the God of the Bible, I think it's pretty clear that God is anything but passive in the lives of his people. He is actively calling out to us and seeking to show us why he is worthy of our worship. Because though God doesn't need our worship, as I said earlier, he wants it. He wants us. And he comes after us again and again and again. The whole narrative of the Bible is a testimony to God's goodness and faithfulness to his people, to his bride, despite our repeated attempts to run away. And yet this begs the question, why? Why would a God who doesn't need us waste his time chasing after people who will only continue to run away? Well, J.I. Packer goes on in that quote I brought up earlier about uh, what our vicious jealousy looks like, and he explains how God's jealousy is of a different kind than our vicious jealousy. It's perhaps better to describe God's jealousy as zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when broken. He describes it as an aspect of his covenant love for his own people. When God gave his first commandment that we should have no other gods before him, that wasn't because God needed something from us. God has no need or insecurity because he exists in loving relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He already has all the affection and love he could ever want contained within himself. We were created as an overflow of that perfect love. 
And so God's jealousy for our worship and affection is for our good, not his. You might even say that God is not simply jealous, but zealous for his own glory. And this is the truest fact of God's jealousy, that is his zealotry. And having been made in his image, the greatest, most perfect thing we can love is that same glory. Because our God loves us and knows that we will only develop greater insecurity and vicious jealousy and impotent passivity by loving and worshiping other gods. Because these things will never satisfy us. We were made for so much more. And so whether we tend to want what others have or reject what they have in a fit of self-protection, whether we have far too much jealousy or not nearly enough, God's jealousy is perfectly balanced between pursuit and patience. When human jealousy goes wrong, our insecurity is leading us to sin out of these warped desires. But God's jealousy can never be sinful because what he desires, what he is zealous for, what God is all about is for us to worship him and only him. Because he is the only one worthy of our worship. I love this passage from Hosea because it beautifully foretells God's plan for redemption, for bringing mercy where there was none to be found, and for accepting and welcoming those who never expected to be anything other than outsiders. But even the Hosea-Gomer dynamic isn't a perfect representation. Because I guarantee that Hosea and Gomer had a wealth of insecurity that came up in their relationship. If they didn't, then they would have already had all this figured out. Even Hosea was not perfect or even close enough to that to be good enough for Gomer. They both ultimately needed to find their worth and value in God. And God himself may be jealous for his glory, for our worship, and to see a love relationship restored, but you and I know that jealousy can be rightly motivated, yet still be acted on in a twisted way. When someone you love hurts you, you might rightly desire to see that relationship restored. But there are good and bad ways to handle that desire. And I think we know what it looks like when someone is jealous and they act jealousy, jealously, and rightly. And I think what it looks like is, is two things. First, it is letting yourself be hurt when someone does something that betrays trust in a relationship. Because that part is about accepting the fact that you do indeed love this other person. And so betrayal hurts. If you don't feel pain when someone you love betrays your trust, then you're protecting yourself and preventing yourself from experiencing that sense of love. But the second part of good jealousy requires that even when we're hurting, we continue to move towards the other person. Now, there's two caveats to this. The first is that moving towards the other person does not mean ignoring hurt and pretending like everything is normal. And the second is that if you're concerned about what moving towards, about what moving towards someone really looks like in action, then you're in luck. Because now as we move to the New Testament, you will see what it looks like for the jealous or zealous God going after one of his own people. And I hope you'll see that he offers something greater than purely human love. He offers us freedom from the trappings of our own insecure, sinful, jealous, passive hearts. 
And so our final passage today comes from the Gospel of John in chapter 4. And I printed as much, uh, or asked to, as much to be, go up there as I could. Um, but I would encourage you to, to turn there in your Bibles and see it for yourself. Just if I can find it. And so, this is John 4, 7 to 26. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Understatement of the year. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but that hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, at first glance, you might be confused. Where's the anger, the aggression that I'd expect to see from a jealous person? Jesus seems to be all about gentleness and keeps talking about worship. So what's going on here? Well, I think that there are two things that are driving Jesus' words and actions. And those are gentleness and a desire for this woman to know him. Because this is what God's loving jealousy looks like in action. And this is a small part of the promise God made in Hosea being fulfilled right in front of us. Because here we have a woman who was well known in her town to have many husbands, and Jesus knows all this from the moment he meets her. But he doesn't open with that knowledge. No, he offers her, as Jesus tends to do, something confusing, but that he promises will satisfy her in a way water from a well never can. And as most people talking to Jesus seem to do, she misinterprets what he's saying in a way that makes sense if he were just the same as her, Oh, this guy must have some magical water that will make it so I don't have to walk out of town to this dang well every day. 
She's got this weird Jewish guy who she shouldn't be talking to all figured out. And it's in that moment where she's most convinced that she knows exactly what's going on, that Jesus speaks into her greatest insecurity and weakness. And why does he do this? Again, it's because he needs her to see that he knows her intimately. Jesus reveals his knowledge of her sin and betrayal of the loving covenant between God's people and God himself. But as he acknowledges the sin done against him, he doesn't reject her, but instead moves towards her. And just like you and me, when people call attention to our shame, she doesn't like this. She recoils initially, and she deflects. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper points out how this woman seems to deflect Jesus' direction of attention to her sin with this question about where to worship. It's as if she's saying, no, I don't want to go there. That part of me is ugly. Let's talk about something else. We do this all the time. We get scared when someone notices how trapped we are in our own sin, and so we deflect or we lash out or we act like we don't care. Anything to keep from having to recognize our impotence to escape from our insecurity. And Jesus goes with her deflection at first, using it to point to what this woman really needs, her freedom. Jesus is jealous for her worship, and he wants her to know who he is because he knows that who he is is exactly what she needs. Jesus was zealous for her to know him, and he wanted her affections not because he needed anything, Okay, maybe he was thirsty. But he did this because he knew this woman was an outcast and likely the subject of a great amount of human vicious jealousy. Maybe she herself was jealous. Um, or maybe she had hardened herself into passivity in her situation because she couldn't see a way out. But in his perfect love and lack of insecurity, Jesus is able to step towards this woman's need and hurt and honestly help her see that the lifestyle she's living is not the lifestyle he intended for her. While he's also doing this, he's showing her that his love is not conditional on her perfection. Jesus reveals that he is what she has been waiting for, what we have all been waiting for in this passage, the Messiah. This is what we all desire most deeply, to see and feel the love of a God who doesn't need us, yet wants us. This is where freedom from our own weakness and sinfulness and insecurity is found in the loving jealousy of the church's jealous husband. God's zealous love for his people is jealous in that it wants what it does not have, our worship. But he doesn't hate us because of this. Instead, his jealousy leads him to save us, to free us from the bonds of our own jealousy. When Jesus goes to the cross, God's jealous love delivers the punishment we deserve for our adulterous, fickle, sinful hearts. And in God's jealous love, he simultaneously has mercy on the people who deserve no mercy. And he says to those who would not be his people, you are my people. And through Christ, we can now say in reply, you are my God. This is the freedom God's jealousy offers. Because God's jealousy is not like ours, and it is a flaw in how we think that we assume he must be insecure and passive or vicious like us. 
In fact, his jealousy is selfless. It is about what is good for his people, not what he needs from us. And this jealousy then bears its fruit ultimately in the cross. The greatest act of sacrifice and holy, jealous love, providing a way for us to ultimately find our hope and joy in the only one who gives us completely perfect love. His jealousy frees us to live new lives, worshiping the only ones who deserve our worship. Jay quoted from 1 Corinthians and reminded me of a verse I love from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5.17. And it says that, therefore the old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we love imperfectly, that we fail, that we are sinners deeply in need of your grace and mercy. And Father, it is an incredible gift that we are able to come before you and humbly ask for forgiveness. And Father, it is just as great a gift that you love us enough to be jealous for our affections, for our worship. Lord, I pray that you would help us to more deeply, more closely embody the image and example that your son Jesus lives out for us. And Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to help us see where we fail, where we struggle to be properly jealous. And most of all, Lord, I pray that you would deepen us in relationship with you, that you would draw us near as you always do. And it's in your name I pray, Heavenly Father. Amen.